Welcome to Woman Up, everyone. Our purpose of this podcast is to connect women from all over the world with the most powerful tool of storytelling. Once a week, a wonderful woman will share her journey with us, focusing on different aspects of her life, aspects that each and every one of you will be able to relate to and learn from. We're all connected in this life, and what better inspiration than your woman next door? Let's find the next woman together. And it's that time, that time of the week where we come back to Woman Up. Welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Adonia. Evie is here. And our guest, our guest today is Alice Aliki Sirunis, who is best known for creating a seven-step system that teaches anyone how to draw. My life's work has been to encourage others to find the joy of drawing and creating art and how it can actually make you feel better. With her emphasis on bringing art to all, she creates sessions using something she calls art mindfulness. After a series of unexpected life plot twists, she personally reaffirmed how art can be a powerful healing force. Difficult relationships and life events can shine a spotlight on the self. Deep knowledge and awareness of the human condition has allowed me an even broader perspective on how to help people using art and a blend of other modalities. Alice began her career as a classroom teacher in Saskatchewan and has been an art educator for over 35 years. She founded Aliki's Art House in Calgary in 1991. An entrepreneur at heart, she continued her second business, Aliki's Art in Mind, while living in Brisbane, Australia. Alice has taught in several countries, published a book, is a visual artist, and is currently helping others via the therapeutic benefits of art mindfulness. Alice enjoys living in the moment. She is inspired by healthy relationships, nature, creation, and creating. Not shying away from having a thirst for learning new things and her curious nature, her latest keen interest is social activism. Welcome to the show, Alice. Thank you for being here. Hi, Adonia. Hi, Evie. Thank you for having me. I have to say that this podcast idea that you guys are on to, I love it because I think it would be my other dream job. You get to sit and listen to people's stories and I find that fascinating. And I just really love the the depth and the width of, of what you two are doing. I think it's, it's, it's amazing. So thanks for having me on. You are lovely. You do look lovely. Uh, people can't see you, but I can. We're super excited to have you. And we're going to dive right into art. So how can art heal? Can you just give us a little bit of a context of what do you do exactly so our listeners could get an idea of what that means? Okay, well, I think I, I kind of happened upon it sort of accidentally because I started out, you know, like Adonia said, as, as a classroom teacher, and I really loved teaching art. And I really didn't know it at the time, but as I watched people like my students and teachers and adults and whoever was doing the workshops, the classes, there's something that started to really shift while they were doing the art. Like they'd get into this meditative contemplative state and they just seemed to feel better after art class. And at the time, I mean, I, I, I certainly didn't have the verbiage to explain what was going on. I started getting, you know, really into right and left hemispheres and how the brain functions and works because I'm really interested in neurology and um, the pathways of the brain and all of that stuff. But I think for the art mindfulness, like I'll, I, I remember how part of this worked because I'd been hired once to, to do a workshop with one of the schools I was teaching at at the time. And it was, it was teaching all of the teachers on staff how to draw. So 
during that time, I happened to, and you've got to know that this was at the very beginning of my career. So I'm in my 20s, pretty naive. I'm just doing my thing. <laughs> and I'm at this workshop and I look at this portrait of a, a woman that I had them draw, right? And I was teaching them how to do that. And I looked at it, at this one teacher, and I said, oh, do you find that you feel really constrained and sad sometimes? Or I don't know even what I said to her, but she starts crying right in the workshop. And I thought, oh, no, she's crying. I didn't know what to do with that, right? But I could. it was almost like looking at her picture and reading a book. And I was saying things that were super personal, but it, I, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And so it was so inappropriate. And like I said... <laughs> pretty young and naive I didn't know what I was doing and and then it really scared me so I totally backed off of that thinking that oh my goodness this is very you know it, it was just really interesting but I thought uh yeah I'm not doing that anymore and so that was kind of my first sort of sort of path into this idea of how art can be a reflection of us and then how it can also be very healing so over the course of time I know that just personally, I would find that it was something I could do for hours on end. It was very soothing and it was very much like breathing for me. Like it was almost like oxygen, right? It's like, I really need to do some art right now. And then over the course of time, I found that it's not just art and it can be like, I, I love doing things like drumming, conscious dance, anything artistic or creative related, I find can be very healing. Well, couldn't agree more. When COVID hit, I lost my job. So I started drawing. I got a canvas. I got like a tripod. I got like all the acrylic paints and all that stuff. And it all kind of started from a YouTube video that it was just showing you the basics of like how to create like a, por like not a portrait. It was mostly like of a, a mountain with a water reflection. That was one of my first drawings. I would sit there and draw for like hours. I would wake up at like three o'clock at night and just have to draw or something like that. I wake up in the morning and just have to draw. Like I would start crying and then I'll just, you know, sit there and draw for like two, three, four hours. Like I would make up to like maybe max six paintings a day. It was such a form of expression to me and just basically kind of calm my head from going mental of all the questions of what am I going to do with my life? When am I going to go back to work? What is my purpose? Am I going to make money again? Is it the right thing to go to Greece right now? Is it not the right thing to go to Europe? Uh, do I stay here? Am I, am I happy? What am I missing? And when I was painting, everything was kind of made sense. It was like all the voices in the head kind of stopped. So I just wanted to jump in and kind of share this because you mentioned soothing and breathing and that's exactly what it was. And so... You mentioned from your pre-interview, uh, you had mentioned the seven step system of like that teaches anybody how to draw. Can we just expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. Again, I stumbled onto teaching people how to draw because I was, I remember it was my, I think it was my second year out classroom teaching and I asked my grade five students, okay, how many of you are artists? How many of you know how to draw? And nobody's hand went up and I thought, well, that's weird. You should all be putting up your hand, like drawing is easy. And then I thought, well, how do I know how to draw? I, I kind of just stumbled onto it as a kid. And then I started getting really interested in, well, how on earth would I teach somebody else to do what comes so naturally to me? And I started reading about it. There, there weren't any books back then. <laughs> really, there was, I think, one book or maybe two that were kind of decent. And then I thought, well, I'll just make up my own steps and I'll just sort of delineate what it is exactly, like sort of observe myself 
from outside of myself and see what is it that I do? What's my process? And what I did was I just made up these seven steps and it teaches anybody how to draw within two hours at the most. Like anyone can learn how to draw, but you know, like there's all these myths around it. Like you need to be talented. You don't need to be talented. Like if you could tie your shoelaces, you could be taught how to draw. It's, it's really that simple, but nobody teaches us how, and everybody thinks it's this this mystical, mysterious, creative talent that everybody must have before they can actually draw something. And it's not true at all. It's basically breaking down shapes, putting them together, and that's it. It's super simple. And I think that what, what happens, like what I've observed happening is that because people have a really hard time saying they're an artist, like Evie, I don't know if you would say I'm an artist because you know, you might feel like, well, I can't say I'm an artist because I just dabble in it and I just really enjoy it and have fun with it, right? So this notion that we're not artists is something that needs to be sort of stripped away because uh, we are all actually very creative human beings where we can all be artists, we can all call ourselves artists. And I think what happens is if you can't draw realistically, that's the reason you may not consider yourself an artist. And I found time and time again, when people start to draw realistically, because that's kind of the gold standard in the art world, it's like, well... What do you mean? You're just doing splots on a piece of paper. Anybody can do that. You're not a real artist unless, of course, you know how to draw realistically. So it, it became my mission without even knowing that it was my mission to teach everybody that I came across, like in, in different spaces and places all over the place to, to learn how to draw. So like I've, I've been in like juvenile detention centers. Oh, I've taught from like K to 12. I've taught people who are in their like 80s and, and so on. And so it, it's just this... It just helps people open the door, I think, to their creativity and to legitimately feel like they can call themselves an artist. And that's where you can really branch off and venture off. And then the healing can really, really start. I see art as a meditation. And I've connected my meditation these days to gardening, which is something new to me that I've never done before. So, you know, I'd love to learn how to draw. Like, even just sitting beside and watching somebody do it, I think, is soothing. So... Where in your journey did this flourish and who were you teaching it to mostly? Well, I, I started with my grade five class. They were my number one experiment to see if, if it can be done, right? And so uh, after that, I started teaching adults, kids in school, out of school, like in different countries, just anywhere and everywhere. Like, so basically, I've taught kids as young as four years old to draw and anybody can learn it. So age doesn't matter at all it's it's totally irrelevant look i love how you said that everybody's an artist my question to you is like what would your advice be to people to, to be able to accept themselves and accept the fact that they're artists in every aspect of life just so they can release that creativity because i think that we're blocking ourselves to the point where we're just not letting all of our inspirations and like you know our inner child kind of a thing which is the most creative version of us that has ever been so what are the steps you think to unlock that if we're created at every aspect of our life then we'll be succeeding in every aspect of our life correct yeah well i i think like there's so many things that you've just said that i i can branch off on but i mean if we if we take something that's creative and do it so let's say you take a drawing class or something you learn and you draw something and then you talk to yourself as though your best friend drew that, what would you tell them about what they just drew? Because as we get better with art, our critical self keeps criticizing at the same pace, right? 
So it's like, how are you speaking to yourself? And what if it was your inner child, like little Evie that was taking that class? Would you really say that to her? Would you say that, well, that you could have done better and that that doesn't look the same, that doesn't look right and, and so on. You know, that's that's part of the the process that I've done for a really long time with kids, with adults, just trying to explain to them that, first of all, it's okay to not like your artwork, like giving giving people permission to not like it, right? But not to give them permission to not like it every single time out, right? So, okay, you don't like something, let's look at this. What don't you like about it? Because what I find, especially like, I, I watch parents with their kids, the kid makes something and it's it's okay. And the parent is like, wow, that's incredible. And the kid's like, yeah, it's okay. And and I will agree with the child. I'll say, yeah, I think it's okay. Is that is that what you're thinking? It's Yeah, it's just okay. Well, what do you think? Well, I really don't like it that much. Okay. Instead of telling them, no, it's really super good. What don't you like about it? We start there. What don't you like about it? And just have that conversation. Okay. And how can we change that if you don't like it? How can we take that mistake? Another thing I do a lot of is like teaching people to really embrace their mistakes. So art becomes a lot like life, right? So it's like, I made a mistake here. Okay. So let's take that mistake on the page and repeat it three times on purpose and see what happens, right? So just kind of having that, that acceptance of, of what we're creating and, and giving ourselves the permission to not like everything that we create. I've created some horrible paintings. They're awful, right? What will I do? Well, I just paint over them sometimes or, or if somebody likes it, it's like, here, just take it. You can have it. So just have fun with it, really, right? And I think that the more that we can really connect with our inner child and learn how to play again, the more we we build that confidence in terms of our creativity, right? So I think all adults right now in the human race, if they took two seconds to actually talk and nurture their inner child and heal some of those wounds and be very compassionate to that little girl or that little boy, a lot of good can come out of that. And and just think back to like when I was a kid, what what really gave me joy? How did I used to play as a child? Like we we don't maybe remember how we used to play as children. Or watching like I'm I'm a yaya, right? So I'm watching my my grandson play and we play together. And believe me, it all comes back quite quickly, right? I think it's a lot of different things. Like learning to be embodied in our bodies is huge, right? Because we tend to operate, I think a lot of people, I, I don't know, I think a lot of people operate from the neck up. We're very cerebral, we're verbal, and we're just thinking all the time. And we've lost touch with our bodies. And so once we embody our body and, and come back to that, I think that could be very nurturing, healing, and a very creative way to start to play again, right? Because when we're kids we move ourselves. We don't just sit and talk and be still all the time, right? So I don't know, I'm veering off here, but I, I don't think it's that hard to be creative. And I don't think that we need to peg, well, she's creative because she's an artist and I can't be creative because I'm not an artist. You could be making a bowl of soup and it could be a very creative process. Adonia, when you said like about the gardening, that's a super creative process. You know, combing your hair in the morning can be a creative process. You could be coming up with different hairstyles or I don't know what, but you know, like anything can really be creative. We just have to give ourselves permission and allow ourselves to be creative. So many inspiring things and so much information. So what is your why in all this? You know, because there's in our brand and whatever we do, there is a big why. 
Well, I think as I've gotten to know myself, as I've gotten older, my big why was the way I've lived my life, which is why not? So my big why was always why not? Why can't we do it this way? Why can't, why can't children be taught how to draw? How come I can't teach an adult that thinks they can't draw to draw? Why can't we use paints and, you know, finger paints and paint like a kid and, and connect to ourselves and our inner child? I think that's how I've just kind of led my life. And, you know, with, with all of it, I guess I've just never seen any reason not to try something new or different and just to allow like my intuitive you know, inspiration to take me to the next place that I was going to in life. I guess with, you know, taking the, this idea of art being healing and then, and then, you know, melding it into the art mindfulness again, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just did this, uh, this one week camp for kids in the summer. And I thought, you know, I've never tried art mindfulness with seven and eight year olds. So they were like seven, eight years old till 13. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. How do, I, how do I possibly come up with curriculum that I've used with adults for years? And how do I kidify it? And how do I get kids to understand how important it is to regulate their bodies right now? Because we are living in a very dysregulated society right now, right? And so I started these exercises, these, these art exercises. And, and I just thought, well, okay, can an eight-year-old comprehend what we're doing here? Of course they can. And so it was just one big experiment and it went really, really well. Like the deepness of these children was astounding. Like some of the things that would come out of their mouths, it's like, how old are you, right? And so it was like this excavation of a gem, these little gems that would pop out of their mouths. And it's like, oh, you guys are so getting this. It was really exciting. And I thought, okay, this can work with kids. This can work with anyone. You know, I have a great reverence for children because I think the way you speak to them, they will, if the bar is up here, they'll always reach the bar. You know, when I was classroom teaching, I would always teach to the smartest kid and everybody else had to catch up and it worked. You don't do the, the lowest common denominator, which is, in my opinion, the way society is right now. Like, let's dumb this down to the lowest common denominator so everybody understands. It's like, why are we doing it that way? It doesn't make sense. What can I say? Like, I think what's really exciting is when I got in touch with this idea of somatics, right? And embodiment, it, it really changed my life because I, I was never into yoga. I was, but when I understood somatics, that, that clicked for me and how important it is. And I think that one way to take that out into the world, a way that's almost easier to like a, a pathway that's a little bit easier is through art because anyone can take a crayon and and scribble something right so taking that and incorporating embodiment with it for example like I'll, I'll just give you a couple of exercises that I did that were really fun with these kids one was I asked them to really pay attention to how they breathe and what they were to do was to take whatever mark making thing they wanted a marker or a brush or whatever and breathe in and make the line and then breathe out so they ended up with a wave by the end of it right and it was really getting them in touch with in the same moment that you're really thinking and feeling and understanding your breath, let's record your breath on a piece of paper so that you can actually visually see it. And that's kind of the underpinning of a lot of art therapy. You know, like with art therapy, like a person could go to therapy for years and talk and talk and talk and not really get anywhere because in that moment, we're using the left hemisphere of our brain. 
So what I found with using the right hemisphere, which is the nonverbal side, which is the emotions, the feelings, the intuition, the art part, you can access a lot deeper and a lot quicker what's going on inside of you. So then with taking this idea of, of somatics and, and the, the drawing or the painting, I find is really much more meaningful and you can go deeper, quicker. And the, the really cool thing is that the issue resolves faster. The issue resolves faster because we're going into the body and we're going into the right hemisphere and we're getting into whatever that issue might be. And so I truly believe that sometimes with talk therapy, which I'm a great proponent of, I think counseling, everybody should be in it, go to it. Talk therapy is super important. I just think there's another way as well where you can actually get deeper without having to use words sometimes. Because, you know, and now I'm, I'm veering off into trauma, but when, when we're hit with traumatic episodes, our brain doesn't, and, and our, our, our body, our brain, our, our soul doesn't digest it with words. So when, when you think of something that was traumatic, big or small, it could have been just like this incident that you had with somebody. It's stored in your brain like a movie. So it's stored, you might remember what, you know, the scene. It's like a visual scene. So you can hear it, you could see it, it might be in color. And it's not just text, it's not just words. So because that's how trauma is stored in our brains, the one way to bring it out is visually, which is not the same as talking about it, right? Because the trauma in that moment, big or small, has been stored inside your body somatically. So how do you bring that out? Well, you don't bring it out with talking. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And I want to piggyback on that because uh, I recently watched an episode on uh, brain, brain explain, mind explain. It was actually on Netflix. It's, but it tied in with another thing, another uh, research that I was reading, how memory works. And basically your memory, it is about the image, but at the same time, it's about the feelings that you had, what you felt. So you store all the emotion. Bring you back a memory multiple times, it can get distorted. So it doesn't mean that when you bring back a memory, you remember as exactly as it happened. And on that particular episode, it was basically mentioning how people were reacting and felt, I think, a few months and a year later after the, the, the Twin Towers fall uh, in the U.S. Anyways, to wrap it all up, it's funny how memory works and it's funny how it's not about exactly remembering the events, but it's always remembering how you felt. But then you can mix and match the images in your head and what was spoken because you'll never almost always get the memory correct in your head. And it's funny. So it's like somebody asking, how, our, how does our memory work then? Like, is everything that I remember a lie? Not exactly, but in some occasions, there's a very good possibility that you remember something wrong. Oh, I have I have to jump in, Abby, because the the idea of like memory it's it's really realities, right? We all live in our very own reality, right? And so, and that's that's just how we operate and function in the world. So when we're trying to share this reality with somebody else, and their reality is very different, a lot of conflict can come in, right? And what you said about memory, I've been fascinated with it as well, and. A few years ago, I, I started doing like a lot of tapping, right? The face tapping and hand tapping. And I, I'm a big, big fan of that. But I discovered something that was absolutely fascinating, which was that I can tap out a memory. 
So I think probably people that are listening to this are familiar with tapping like EFT, right? Emotional freedom technique, where you, you use it for anxiety or to calm down or whatever. Well, I did this thing and again, just experimenting. And I decided to see if I can access a memory that I had or access a memory that just took place yesterday or a few hours ago because I was having a conversation and I needed some information and I don't know how it happened, but I just started tapping and I was able to access it. And basically I would just say to my brain, I need to access this information or go into the file or whatever I would say to myself. And I was able to do this and I use it every once in a while. It's like, oh, I can't remember what that name was of that person that I need to, and, and I'll tap it. And it's like, oh, right. It, it, it may come right away. Like, I'll give you an example. I had bought a, a table, but it was an artist that actually had, had created this table and I needed to remember his name. Now, this had been like over 20 years and I thought, uh, how am I ever going to remember this person's name? Because I need to contact them. And I tried this and it didn't happen right away. And I thought, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to wait. Seven hours later, I remember this name from 20 years ago. So that's why like this whole thing is so fascinating. You know, this, this idea of trauma and of memory and, and all of it. And when you said about the, the Twin Towers, I'm sorry, I have a little story about that too. And I, because I've been, I've been sort of thinking a lot about trauma and how it leads to addiction. And especially in the, in the, the world we're living in right now, how there's so much isolation and all that stuff. So on uh, 9-11, they did these experiments afterwards, or they, these realizations or whatever you want to call them, that, you know, there were certain people that had severe PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and some that didn't. And it turns out the people who had been in the stairwell and that were trapped up there, with other people had severe PTSD, but the people who ran out of the building didn't. Now, most people would say, well, of course they didn't, they ran out of the building, but that, that's not what it was. Two things happened in that moment. They ran out of the building, which means they got an opportunity to move their body and shake out the trauma. Because one way we can, we can get rid of our, our trauma is to physically shake it out, right? They, they basically shook out their body and ran but there were people running towards them, hugging them, and then running away from the burning building with them. In that moment, they told their story to those people. So they did a few things. They, they moved their body, they were seen and heard by somebody else, and they shared their trauma story right away. And that's why they didn't have the PTSD that the people in the stairwell did, because they were squashed up there. They couldn't really move, right? And they were trapped up there. Yeah, so I, I think, I think this this kind of brings me into like the what's going on in the world right now, which is the last two years have been very traumatic for people, but they may or may not realize it, right? Very traumatic for kids, but parents are either in denial or they're not recognizing it because it's too big for them. They can't, some parents can't even, even hold space for their own children right now. And I mean, we've, we've seen that there's been so much death and destruction in just, if you look at just the addictions community, right? We've got a phenomenal amount of overdoses, relapses, suicides, way, way, way more than the, the cause of death, uh, you know, over the, over the virus. So looking at that, it's like, well, what's the solution here? Because the, the actual problem is that an addict left alone is in bad company. I actually did a painting about that. So you take somebody with their addictions and you isolate them. It's the perfect storm for disaster. So we've taken a whole, let's say a whole city here, right? We've taken a whole city, 
community, country, the whole world, where we've isolated people. How cruel is that? It's just cruel. Because in that moment when you're isolating people and they have no connection to each other, you are essentially starting off the perfect start-off point for addiction. Like, I really fear that in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to have severe addictions from, from kids in this time period. And so what's the solution for that? The solution is to talk, to connect, to allow connections, hugs, community, bring community back. Stop scaring children. They're not, they're not going to kill their grandparents if they hug them. All of the stuff that's been said to them is, yeah, kind of don't get me started because this is a real, this really, really troubles me of where the kids are going to go. Like, how is this going to, how is this going to work? How is this going to pan out? In, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And I think that parents need to parent themselves first. They need to heal their wounds, heal their trauma, because they can't do it for their kids if they haven't done it for themselves. And so how can they do it for themselves? Well, there's a lot of help out there, right? Like I said, I'm a big proponent of doing it through the arts. You know, getting in touch with what's been the most traumatic thing for you in the last two years. Not this, um, oh, I'm fine, the kids are fine, everything's fine. It's not that fine. And, and it's okay to be scared. It's okay to have fear. It's just not okay to not do anything about it, especially if you're a parent. I love it. And I love the example of like how parents need to parent themselves first because nobody prepares you to become a parent. You're never ready. So when people say like, I need to get ready, like I need to be ready first, you're never going to be ready. That's basically the sum of every woman friend of mine who had a baby. And I asked her like, were you ready? Like, no, no, nobody ever, ever prepares you for that. But I'm going to mention another example from a book that I was reading the other day. It was a man and he said thank you to his mom because of how she raised him. And his example was basically... They were in the kitchen one day and he wanted this like milk and he went to grab that huge jug of milk that it was bigger than him because he was probably like two and a half at the time. And then he dropped it and his mom got in the kitchen and she said, oh, well, whoopsies, what did we do here? That's why I told you, you can't lift it. You're just too small for it and it's bigger than you. So what are we going to do now? We're going to clean it together and then you're just not going to do it again or something like it was something in the terms of that. It was, it was the calmness in her voice. It was the way she reacted to it. You know, like she didn't react to the situation. She, she like, she navigated the situation. It was not a reaction. So it was amazing how I read this book. And if you think about it, our kids are a sum up of all of our reactions. I mean, we're humans, like you can't be perfect all the time, but would you treat your kid the same way you treat your boss? Like, would you explode, like explode on your boss the same way you explode on your kids? Sometimes you wouldn't. So sometimes it's good to like think our kids like our bosses. That's just something that I was, I was kind of thinking, but um, yeah, I don't know. It was just a great example of like how, like one single thing, one single emotion, which ties back to memory can come back and actually, you know, shape you to be, the person that you are today and to think of your mom as like the greatest person ever because of how she was treating you even when you were like two and a half. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great example of a, a mom who was regulated, right? A mom who maybe had dealt with some of her stuff so that she's not perpetuating it with her kids in the next generation and so on. And I think it, it's the onus is on each of us to do the work. 
like to do the emotional healing, to do the trauma healing, so that when we go out into the world, we're not, we're not dumping our trauma on everybody else, our dysregulation, our dysfunction, right? I mean, none of us, we're not going to be perfect at it. But I think there, there needs to be some sort of personal responsibility of doing a little bit of that work and, and healing those childhood wounds. Because once that starts to happen, it really frees up a person's life. A hundred percent. And just the right, the last thing that I'll say, and I'll just pass the microphone to Adonia, but it's basically, I've seen myself, I've tested it and I've seen myself like reacting to the same thing today and two years ago. And it's like, it's a huge difference of how like, in a sense of like my mom, my mom might say something, right? And how we react two years ago to how I'm reacting today when I think I've had more peace of mind with myself and I am kind of like more in, in, in alignment with myself, it's completely different because I'm not reacting. I'm just basically answering. So I think that's that's kind of uh, the thing. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I, 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 love, I love that. I love that because you're you're taking that pause and actually giving yourself some self-compassion maybe and some like kudos of like wow like look at how I reacted to that same situation two years in and I think we need to do that we need to inventory where we were and where we're at right because it can it can go down a dark hole thinking that oh I'll never I'll never understand this I'll never be good at this I'll never be it's like no like just look at yourself a year ago two years ago five years ago and just do that do that very conscious inventory of, oh, actually, I have gotten in a real, to a really good place around that certain incident or around that certain person. And I think what that really entails is like human growth, especially being able to reflect back and saying, okay, I was in a crappy place. Now I can look back and say how I've overcome that and how I've grown as a human. And I think the key to all of this is the more experiences that you have in life. I feel like the more that we get to experience, the more we shed layers of trauma, which will stay there, but just in a different way, we might settle with you saying that you've overcome that and being able to talk about it and to maybe teach people about it. Now, what I want to get into, because we're there's, we could talk for hours, Aliki, for sure. What I want to switch into is a little bit about your, maybe your latest endeavor in the sense of what you're doing how you're being active right now. We had talked a lot about activism. And first I want you to tell people what that what is activism for one and how it's come up through your life, especially because you've come from a background of art mindfulness and do the two come together? So I think activism, okay, first of all, I have to say that the word activism, when I hear that word, I, tune, I would tune out because I didn't really care about, about activism. I didn't care about politics. I hated politics. The way I would vote is like, oh, two seconds before I got to the polling booth, if I did show up, I would just kind of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. who should I vote for? <laughs> I mean, I, I had no interest in politics at all. I thought they were stupid. I thought they were ingenuous. You know, you'd hear people up there and it's like, I'm, I'm not buying what you're selling because it's just not, it's just not real for me. It's not authentic. It's nothing. It's... Yeah, I thought it was really stupid. So anyway, so for me, activism is is being active in my life, being active with the things that affect me and maybe what I can do to make some changes. You know, we all have a sphere of influence, even if it's one person or two people or three people. It doesn't have to be 
hundreds and thousands of people. It can just be a few people in our in our circle of influence that we come across every day. And so I guess for myself, like I I actually, of course, goes back to what's going on in the world. So a couple of years ago, after, you know, the, the crazy first two weeks, there was a lot of fear. Like I thought, oh, my goodness, like the whole world is shutting down. There, there must be something to this. And so, so, you know, I followed all the rules and everything at the time. And I thought, yeah, got to got to listen to the news and, and follow what's going on, because I believed that. If I heard it on the radio, it was it was truth. If I heard it on TV, at local news, national news, world news, it was true, right? I mean, why why would they why would they lie to us? <laughs> and so so two weeks in, followed all the rules, and then and then I thought, well, wait a minute, there were dots that were not connecting for me, and so and I and I believe I'm not alone because there's a lot of critical thinkers that in the world, right? We've got two right here. So when things didn't connect, when those dots didn't connect, I started to look look at things for myself, not what I was hearing from people or from news sources and that kind of thing. So that's kind of how my journey started over the last couple of years. Now, so there's there's a lot of stuff around that, but when the mask situation came up and we've been very locked down here in Canada and people in Calgary wear masks everywhere, even outdoors, in their cars, like everywhere. And so I had a health exemption. I can't wear one. So that was a whole journey and has been unto itself because of people's reactions to that, right? Not favorable a lot of times. And, and so there was this like, you know, having to advocate for myself, being exhausted from even going out because I didn't know where the attack was going to come from that day. And so I started going to rallies and I started like a couple of years ago. So every, and I I would just go sporadically, but I remember the first rally I went to, I went by myself and I didn't know anybody there. And I was like, oh, like-minded people, they're opinionated and their opinions happen to be very similar to mine. And I'm able to speak my opinion because I don't have somebody telling me that, you know, that, that I'm wrong because this isn't what the narrative is. And so over the course of time, I've been going to rallies and I find it really fascinating that every two months, so there's one coming up in January, there are worldwide rallies and it's over 180 countries on a Saturday, one o'clock all over the world, standing up for freedom. So we've got millions of people marching in the streets in Europe, in Australia, in Canada. We're not hearing anything about it. And every weekend, uh, this is how I spend my weekends. On Saturdays, I go to freedom fighting rallies. You know, here it's at Central Memorial Park. You can go on Telegram, uh, Calgary Freedom Central and join the group. And for anybody who has felt like this doesn't make sense, or for anyone who has lost people, and I don't mean lost by, you know, death or whatever, which is very sad, but I mean lost their community and or people that they know and love. So in their own families, right? We've had a lot of divisiveness in families we've had a lot of division in friendships you know if we look around are you still hanging around with the same people that you did two years ago I'm certainly not and in some cases yes but in some cases no and and there's been this this loss of community and connection this isolation for speaking things that are maybe that people don't agree with right the rallies that I go to and the the activism for me is getting information that is from you know, lawyers that are standing up, nurses, doctors, lay people, anybody and everybody that has a story to tell, because that's where 
you're hearing the story firsthand. It's not, you know, media spin or anything else. They have nothing to lose or maybe they've lost everything. And so the speakers are an hour of speaking and then you just walk down the street. It's family friendly. We hold up signs and we're just getting the message out there that we are actually losing our freedoms. And I know not everybody agrees with that. You know, they'll wake up and it's like, well, I still have my freedom. But we are losing our freedoms. And I was quite frustrated when all this started because I thought, well, how can I help? I'm just one person. And so what I'm doing now is just talking to people and and just kind of trying to understand where they're at and trying to say, hey, have you thought of this? Have you ever thought of it this way or that way? And, you know, some of my most wonderful sort of moments or, or days are when somebody will say, well, oh, thanks for thanks for sharing that with me. I never really thought of it that way. And that's what it is. It's like, Can we start to be open-minded again, especially as Canadians? Can we be polite again? Can we be compassionate again? Can we stay in our humanity again? Because that's what it means to be Canadian. You know, volunteerism in this country has always been incredible. And where does that come from? It comes from a compassionate heart, right? And so that's what I want to see again. But I have to be the change in order for change to happen. You know, we all have the responsibility as one person to make that change, right? To be that person that we want to see out there. And how does this meld into, you know, the art part? Well, I've started doing some some art that's been, and I had started it last year, but I'm just starting to put it up now on my Instagram. Because, you know, if you ask somebody, what, what's been the hardest thing for you in the last two years? For me, it's been, I haven't seen my daughter who lives in Australia. I haven't seen her for two years. And so I had done a huge painting around that, right? Because that's how I've been healing is, all of the frustration and the anger that I've had around, as many people have had, like we've all had our stuff that's happened over the last two years, right? Taking that and channeling it into something healing. And so that's how I'm using my art now. Over the years, I've done a lot of journaling. So it was just this compilation of art and writing. Because when I do art, I almost have to have pen and paper beside me to write ideas that are coming to me or or things I need to get rid of or whatever. And so I've got a ton of these journals that I've had for years. And and sometimes these journals make it onto my paintings. So my paintings, like sometimes I love them in terms of, wow, aesthetically, they're really pleasing. The composition's great. I love that color. And it's just, ta-da. But there's paintings that I do that are art therapy, basically. I don't care how they look. I write text all over everything. And it's just that I need to get it out. I, I need to get it out. I need to get out all the negative emotions that I'm feeling about the world. And then I'm fine. You know, if you if you think about things that are healthy, it's always sunshine, eat well, and get exercise. You know, that was like the mantra for decades. It's like, but what about purging emotionally so that you can have emotional health? That's just not even on the radar. I mean, if we look at disease or ailments or anything like that, it's basically 80% or 90% is unresolved emotional trauma. Unresolved emotional trauma brings us to disease, brings us to dysfunction in our bodies, right? So I just think it's really key to have that as a, as a daily routine, as a daily, whatever you want to call it, something where you are actually emotionally clearing things out. What do you define as success? Okay, I, I've thought about that and I, I've had about <laughs> five different definitions that came to me. But I think that success for me, it's kind of been twofold. One is very earthly success, which is like 
I wanted to do certain things in my life. And then I would just go for it and do them. Maybe I made a mess of it. Maybe I didn't, but I just did it. And so success for me is having the courage to do what you are meant to do, but also to know, know yourself, get to know yourself, get to love yourself so that you know what your purpose is in the world. And I think that's success. But I think as, as time goes by, the success is where do I, where do I intentionally spend my time? And I feel that success for me is what is my relationship to God? That to me right now is, is how I, I don't know if I could even define it as success because success is such a worldly word. And I, I, I'm not even comfortable with it anymore because it's like, yeah, I think success is the relationship we have with God, with ourselves and with other people. That's it. Like the rest of it is temporal. It's, it's going to pass away. But the real, the real success will be when I get to the end of my life and as I pass on to the afterlife. I guess that's where I'll know how successful I actually was in this life. Another woman added to the Woman Up roster. How amazing is that? And I love that we, we talked about art, mindfulness, art as a therapy, art as healing, how to be active with your voice and the importance of like standing in your own skin and, and being okay with that. And there are lessons that come along with it and different tasks that we need to tackle. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. I know it's morning for you and night for us for being on Woman Up. We look forward to the next episode with you because we know it's going to unfold into something amazing. Thank you for being on this episode of Woman Up. Thank you for listening to Woman Up. You can find all links and websites to our wonderful women in our show notes. We encourage you to connect and follow them. We're always looking for the next woman to share her story with us. To feature the women who inspire you, please contact us on Instagram at womanup, there's only one you.